Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you thinking about chopping up an old handsaw, but you're unsure about the ethics of doing so? You want to know if a glued up raised panel door with a twist can be fixed. Do you know the difference between accuracy and precision? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 11 of the show for September 13th, 2017. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to offer thoughts and prayers for the millions of people that have been impacted by the recent hurricanes to hit Texas and Florida. You know, it's just, it's really gut-wrenching to see the devastation that these storms have caused and continue to cause. So uh, to everyone that's been directly affected by this damage, our thoughts and prayers are with you. As for myself up here in the protected mountains of uh, southwestern Virginia, uh, I'm still crawling right along on the hand hand saws that I've been working on. Um, I have been trying to get out to the shop to work on them. But I just haven't really gotten a whole lot of time to to do so. Um, the, the past weekend was spent working on the cabin, which left me just way too tired to get out into the shop after the sun went down. Um, I have gotten one of the saws almost completely finished, but the other three still need quite a bit more work before they'll be ready to list for sale. So, uh, you know, not uh, not quite as uh, fast as I thought I would get them built, but. You know, these things uh, always seem to work out that way. Um, But something I have been starting to think about is my class schedule for next year. Um, I would like to try to do probably three or four classes in 2018 if I can uh, get my schedule worked out. But I'm not quite sure yet what those classes are going to be on. Um, So I'm, I'm reaching out for a little help. Uh, If you live in the Grayson County, Virginia area, or you are willing to travel to Galax, Virginia, in the southwestern Virginia area, just above the North Carolina border, um, to take a class, or even if you can't travel, but there's a class you'd really like to take but can't find offered anywhere else, uh, just drop me a line and let me know what kind of class you'd be interested in taking. I've been tossing around the idea of doing some basic one-day skill-building type classes, not so much project classes, but I'm not sure how popular that would be since there there wouldn't be any kind of project being built. Uh, instead, it would be you know some basic hand tool exercises, just like planing and cutting practice joinery and things like that. Um, you know, but again, I'm not sure how popular that would be if uh, if there isn't an actual project being offered. But uh, so let me know if if you'd find a class, a one or two day class like this useful, or if you'd rather take a class where an actual project was was being built. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. And like I said, I would really, even if you, you know, would have no intention on traveling down here to southwestern Virginia to take that class, if you could have any class that you wanted offered close by to you so you could go there to take a one-day class or a two-day class, what kind of class would you be looking to take? Uh, Let me know your thoughts. So I've got a new patron to thank this week. Uh, Thanks to Joe Delorier for signing up to become a a patron. 
Um, Joe was actually one of the students in my Candlebox class earlier this year. So hello, Joe, and, and thank you for signing up to be a patron. Uh, I also want to thank William Elliott, Arcadius Chikowski, Bill Warnock, Krista Kay, Lawrence Polinski, and Jeff Skiles for their continued support on Patreon. And if you want to become a patron, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfindwoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. Um, and a note to my current patrons, uh, you know, certainly if you have something that you'd like to hear discussed on that patron extra show, send in those suggestions because, um, you know, uh, I try to come up with, with good, interesting topics, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's just nice to have uh, the audience feedback and participation and, you know, what kind of things, what kind of questions do you have or what would you like to hear on the Patron Extra Show? So let's go ahead and get into our questions for this week. Our first question comes from Justin, and Justin says, Hey, Bob, I'm a new listener and a new hand tool woodworker. I'm in the process of building my first bench using a mix of Rob Cosman's $100 bench and Paul Sellers' workbench. I'm trying to gather my first hand planes. I currently own a Stanley No. 4 and a few chisels from the big box store. I'm a little overwhelmed as to what I need to purchase. I scour eBay regularly looking for a Stanley No. 7 or No. 8. Is there any issue with using other brands? I know Stanleys are somewhat the de facto in hand planes. Also, based on what I have, would a sharpening system be the next thing to buy? I have seen the sandpaper and plate glass granite slab method used. So, Justin, uh, you know, starting the hand tool journey can certainly be overwhelming, as you're you're finding out. Um, but my first recommendation really would be to take a step back and and really assess what your immediate needs are. So judging from the, the way you've worded your question, what you're really doing is you're, you're looking at tools. What tools do I need to purchase next? You know, you say you've got a, a number four hand plane and some chisels, um, but, you know, what tools do I need next? Um, and I would say step back, take, you know, take a step back and assess what your needs are based on a project. So I always, I always suggest that new, worker, new woodworkers first pick the project that they want to build before you even start thinking about tools. Um, so that's my first suggestion. Forget about the tools for a few minutes and choose your project first. Now, it sounds like you may have already chosen a workbench as your, your first project, so that's great. Um, it, it's pretty, it's a, a pretty ambitious first hand tool project, but that's okay. What I want you to do is break that project down into chronological tasks. What do you need to do first, second, third, etc.? Now, you don't necessarily need to list out every single task that you need to do to get to a finished workbench. Rather, just try and, and figure out you know, the first four or five tasks and what order you need to do them in. Then take a, that, you know, look at those tasks, look at the first two or three in the list, and figure out if you have the tools that you need to complete those specific tasks. Don't look beyond the first couple. If you've got the tools you need to do those first few steps, great. Jump right in, get started. If you don't have the tools that you need to start with the first few steps of building that workbench, then focus your efforts on getting those tools first so that you can get started. Then once you reach a point, you know, get started on that workbench and, and continue building it. And once you reach a point where you can't move forward, 
because you don't have the tools you need, then you buy the tools you need for the next two or three steps. So I, I think you probably see where I'm going with this. So, you know, it's good to think ahead. Oh, you know, you're going to need a, a joiner plane at some point in the future so you can flatten the workbench. But you may not be at that point yet. You know, if you don't have a base built or if you don't have the top laminated yet, um, or if you don't have any of the lumber cut yet, you just may not be at the point where you need that number seven or number eight. So I would avoid looking for it and worrying about that tool right now because there are likely other tools that you're going to need between now and when you're ready for that joiner plane. Um, you know, do you have the necessary layout tools? You're going to need those for the very first steps of the project. So if you don't have those, you should really be looking in, in that direction and focusing on those before you worry about a joiner plane. So try to focus on the tasks so that you don't get overwhelmed by the tools. And if you do it that way, you'll have the, all the tools that you need when you need them, and you'll spend more time working wood and less time worrying about the tools. Now, in terms of brands, I, I hate focusing on brands because you know there are, there are so many good, reliable brands on the old tool market. And even, even with new tools today, there's so many different directions you can go. Um, you know, Stanley was just one of, of many reliable brands and they show up the most because they manufactured the most, not necessarily because they were the best. Um, there are folks who will argue that there were better tools out there than Stanley's. So, you know, I would suggest also looking at other brands like Sargent, like Miller's Falls, um, older craftsman tools, hand tools can be just as good, if not better than Stanley's. In fact, Stanley made some of the tools that craftsmen sold with their name on them. Um, Sorby is another, another good name record. You don't hear, um, hear the name record, um, all that often anymore. Um, but record planes, you know, they were a UK manufacturer and they were, they were just as good on every level as Stanley, if not better. Some would argue that the record planes were actually better than Stanley's. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of brands that you can look for. What I would say is stick to, to planes manufactured before World War II if you can, and you should be in good shape with any brand that was manufactured before World War II. How do you know if it was manufactured before World War II? Well, you really start to see a lot of um, cheapening going on after World War II because of the need for the precious metals and, and different woods. So I look for, what I look for are, are first real rosewood handles. Don't look for, you know, if, if a plane has stained hardwood or hardwood stained to look like something else, it's a cheaper model. Pass on it. Look for planes that have real rosewood. Um, look for brass adjusting wheels for adjusting the depth. If it's plastic, pass. If it's, a, a, you know, just a, a metal other than brass, it's probably a cheaper brand. Um, all of the decent brands used brass for those adjusting wheels. Um, look at the frog of the plane itself. I like a frog with a large flat surface for the iron to bed to rather than the later style frogs that were, they, they were, they look like they're milled just around the perimeter. And then the, um, the inside area of the frog is sort of relieved. So it never comes in contact with the blade. Um, I like the style of plane that has a large surface, a flat, a totally flat frog, and it's not milled with a relief. That was a later, um, that was a later manufacturing change that made the tools faster and easier to manufacture, but did not necessarily make them better. 
Um, so the earlier planes had nice flat frogs that the iron would bed solidly to. So look for a nice flat frog. If you get a plane with all of these features, you'll likely get a good tool regardless of what name is stamped into the lever cap. Now, in terms of sharpening, you are certainly going to need something. Most people will end up with stones at some point. So if you can't afford it, you certainly wouldn't go wrong buying a, a good set of stones. Norton makes a, a decent set of stones, and you can even save some money with the Nortons by buying the combination stones, where you get four stones essentially for the price of two. Um, I personally use Sigma water stones these days, and, and I think that they're excellent, but they're, they are a little bit more expensive than the Nortons. Um, if you can't swallow the cost of a set of good stones right now, a very inexpensive and quick way to get started is with sandpaper, and I think you mentioned that in your question. So what I would do is go to the home center and find the ugliest, least expensive 12-inch um, marble-esque floor tile that you can find. It's just going to be a big 12-inch square flat tile. They're usually about 2 bucks a piece. Half the time, most of the time, you know, whether it's Lowe's or Home Depot or Menards or whatever, they're going to have um, some ugly flat tile that you know is, is in the marble family that uh, is on clearance they're usually a dollar or two dollars a piece buy two of them and then have the guy at the uh, at the home center use their wet saw to cut each one of those tiles in half so that you have four pieces that are each about six inches by 12 inches then go over to the paint section and get yourself some sandpaper in 220 400, 600, 1,000, and 2,000 grit. Now, my local Lowe's has 1,000 and 2,000 grit paper, but if your home center doesn't, you can easily find it at, uh, at an auto parts store. So go to the auto parts store if you can't get it at the home center. And I would suggest getting the black wet and dry stuff or the no-clog sandpaper. Don't go for the cheap stuff that's just really meant for wood. Get the good sandpaper. Also, get yourself a can of spray adhesive while you're there. Um, and then order yourself a cheap side clamp honing guide if you don't have a, a local woodworking store where you can get one of those cheap side clamp honing guides. Then you take the uh, sandpaper, those pieces of sandpaper, if they're full sheets, cut them down into thirds, I would say, or yeah, probably thirds, um, and spray adhesive that sandpaper onto those pieces of tile. And in essence, you're going to make your own stones. And they're going to work great to get you started with sharpening, and they're not going to cost a lot of money to come up with that system. Um, and, you know, you may decide that you never want anything else and that that system works perfectly fine for you and you never need to change. So um, that's what I would suggest to get started with sharpening if you can't go for a full set of stones right now. So I hope that helps. So our next question comes from Rush. Rush wants to know, when does it make sense to cut down a saw to salvage it? He says, I picked up a nice old Atkins saw, filed six-point rip. Apparently, someone had kinked the blade and attempted a repair by hammering the blade, hammering the plate, which is now dimpled in that area. The saw continues to be weak at that point and is also miss missing a tooth there. There's a good 21 inches of saw plate from the dimpling missing tooth back to the handle. Would it make sense to cut and reshape the blade to salvage this saw? A shorter saw, as a shorter saw, I thought it might still offer good service as a bench rip saw for boards clamped into the bench vise. So, Rush, um, you know, 
I have seen and repaired a lot of old damaged bent saws. Um, and I have seen saws where folks have attempted to repair the damage and done more damage than there probably was in the first place. So I would say absolutely go ahead and cut that saw down. In fact, I myself have an old Distin, I think it was a Distin, um, that someone gave me that the toe of the saw had a kink that was so bad, there was no way it was ever going to be completely hammered out. And if you did completely hammer it out, that section was going to be so weak that it just wasn't worth it. It would it would definitely kink again because um, the area closest to the toe of the saw um, is usually the hardest to fix and also the thinnest and the, the area that is most susceptible to future damage. So it, it tends to be the area where um, much of the time the damage is somewhat permanent. Um, you know, sometimes you can repair damage at the toe, kinks at the toe, um, but sometimes you can't get them out fully and then they just kink again. So I have certainly cut down old saws to make shorter panel saws, um, and it works just fine. What I would suggest to, so that the saw still looks appropriate is that you try to get some measurements from an actual panel saw in that size. So if you were to just take the saw and cut the toe off of it, what you're going to end up with is say a 20 inch saw that's way too tall, right? The, the blade is probably way too wide for its, for its length, um, depending on how wide the, the blade was to begin with. So what I will typically do, if I'm going to take a, say a 26 inch saw and, uh, the front three or four inches is damaged. So I've got to cut, you know, several inches off the front of that. I'll look at the, you know, the dimensions of say a 22 inch saw or a 20 inch saw and and cut the saw not just at the toe but I might cut it along the back as well and make the blade a little bit narrower to even out those proportions and that that's going to give you a saw that actually looks a little better it's not that important that it that it looks good um unless it's important to you it's just something that I like to do because um it, it to me that it just makes the saw look a little bit more proportional and not so short and squat and stubby. So I would suggest looking at old saw proportions and trying to get the the height of the saw in proportion with whatever length you end up cutting that saw down to. Um, so and and I I agree with you. I think your saw would make a great bench rip saw once it's cut down to about twenty inches or so, um, and and should do the job just fine. So I say go ahead and cut it down. So our next question comes from Jonathan, and Jonathan has what I think is a, could be a pretty common problem. He wants to know, are there any realistic options for fixing or at least slightly improving a glued-up frame and panel door that has a bit of a twist? Um, so Jonathan, I think you're in good company. I don't know anyone who has ever built a frame and panel door that has never built one that had a, a slight twist to it. I don't think anyone built every single door, every, every single frame and panel door they've ever made perfectly flat. Um, and certainly, you know, I don't know if this is your first time building such a door or not, but, um, you know, I know my first door didn't come out flat. Um, and, you know, there there's certainly some ways that you want to fix that. So I did follow up with Jonathan to ask uh, on this, just to ask a very important question. 
did he use hide glue? Um, if he would have used PVA, he would have had a pretty much no chance of repairing the twist. Um, you can, if you've got a door with just a little bit of twist, you can probably use a hand plane and a pair of winding sticks and plane the twist out of the door. But what you're going to end up with is you're going to, you're going to thin the rails and styles down unevenly. So you may not notice it from the front when the door is closed, but when you open that door and you look at the door from the side, um, if those, you know, those rails and styles are, are thinner at one corner than they are at the other, it's going to be very obvious looking at the side of the door because you're going to see a significant difference in thickness from, say, top to bottom on one side and bottom to top on the other side. Um, you know, and if the twist is significant, there's not much you can do at all if you use PVA. Um, you know, you may, say, try to steam it and bend it out under, you know, some real heavy clamping pressure, you know, in the opposite direction of the twist. But the wood is only going to move so much. And if you try to bend it, you're most likely going to introduce bends into the wood and you're not going to have a straight coplanar um, surface anymore. So what you'll end up with is the corners may be in the same plane, but the center of that door might be kind of cupped. So you'll have this sort of square bowl shape where the corners are high and the center is, is low. Um, so that probably won't work so great either. But Jonathan did use hide glue. He used liquid hide glue. So there is some hope. So to fix a twisted door frame like this, that it's been glued up with hide glue, the trick is you need to get the glue line hot enough to melt the glue. So one way you can do this is to use a heat gun and quite a bit of patience. Um, with a heat gun, you're only going to be able to heat one joint at a time, unless you have two heat guns and you're playing wider. Um, something that can help is if you have clamps like um, parallel jaw clamps that have reversible heads. So that'll allow them to act as spreaders and that will make the process a little bit easier. If you don't have clamps that you can turn the heads around and make them act as spreaders, you're basically going to have to rely on trial and error to see when that glue is hot enough to move the joint. Um, if you have the clamps, what I would do is apply the spreaders to the rails and styles of the door frame so that you're trying to push the joint apart. Put a little bit of pressure on there, just enough that the joint will begin to come apart when the glue gets hot enough. And you're going to need to get that glue to about 120 to 140 degrees. Um, you don't want to put too much pressure on there because you don't want to crack any of the, the parts of the door frame because they are still glued together. But you want enough pressure on there so that when the glue does melt, the joint will move under the pressure of the spreaders. Um, you are going to be heating wood though, right? So with a, it's a mortise and tenon joint, which is fully encased in wood. So you're really not going to have direct access to that glue line. And wood is an insulator. So it's going to take a little bit of time with that heat gun to get that joint up to the inside of that joint now up to the, the right temperature to melt that glue. And you're going to have to get it up to that temperature on all sides of the joint. So you're going to have to constantly be moving the heat gun from one side of the joint to the other to try and heat it up. And you want to do so carefully so that you don't scorch the outside of the wood. If the door is small enough though, you can put it in an oven and I would put it in at about 200 degrees or so because it's 200 is not so hot that you're going to scorch the wood. The wood will handle 200 degrees, no problem. 
Um, but it's hot enough that if you leave it in there for an hour or two, the temperature inside the glue joint should get hot enough to soften the glue. Um, once you're up to temperature, you're going to have to move quickly to get the, the, um, the door out of the oven and either get your spreaders on there quick to get that joint apart. Or if you're going to use a, you know, just a mallet with a, a little block to knock the joint apart, you're going to have to move quick before the glue cools back down, but you will have a minute or so to, to work on it. If you get the joint, if you get the glue warm enough. And like I said, it's probably going to take an hour or so in the oven to get the heat all the way to the inside of that, that glue joint because wood is an insulator. You can try soaking the joint in boiling water, but that may do more harm than good. Um, soaking a joint in water is typically going to work better if the glue line is exposed. For example, if you have a corner with a through dovetail, you can soak the corner in a, like some boiling water, but the water there has direct access to the glue. In a mortise and tenon joint, as I mentioned already, that glue is hidden inside the joint. So you may end up doing more harm than good because if you soak a mortise and tenon joint and you oversaturate the wood and swell the tenon inside the mortise, even if you soften the glue, you may have trouble getting that joint apart. So in the case of a mortise and tenon, I would probably recommend not soaking it in water. I would say try to go to try to try to go with the, the either the oven or the heat gun method instead. If you can get the joint open just a little bit from the heat but you can't get it all the way out. One thing you can also try to do is put in some denatured alcohol into the joint. Now, what is going to happen is once you get enough DNA into the joint, the hide glue is going to turn brittle, sort of like like glass or like rock candy. Once the uh, the alcohol flashes out and the glue gets brittle, you can give the joint a good wrap with a mallet and break the glue bond because the, the glue bond will actually shatter because the glue gets brittle. Um, and that should help you to take the glue joint apart. Once you get it apart, then you're going to have to check to make sure that it'll go back together without twist. So you may need to adjust the mortise or adjust the tenon so that when you dry fit that assembly, everything goes together flat. If you, if you don't do that, when you glue it back up, you're just going to glue it back up with twist again. Um, so you're going to need to, to fix the joint itself, fix the mortise and tenon in order to do it right. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, as I've been saying all along, the mortise and tenon is probably the toughest of the, the joints to undo. But if you did use hide glue, um, you know, at least you, you'll have a chance. So I would say give those, those uh, solutions a try. So our last question comes from Marcus. And Marcus wants to know if we can discuss how you mark measure how you measure mark and cut parts to ensure equal sizes for a project what tools do you use to take the rough lumber up to a point where you're ready to begin joinery planes saws shooting boards tape measures etc i like to be very accurate but i'm told that my adherence to numbers can actually backfire so uh, marcus whoever told you that your adherence to numbers can actually backfire is absolutely 100 percent correct um you know, the way I like to look at it, it, it's the age old argument of accuracy versus precision. When we're working by hand, we're, our, our aim, our goal is to be very, very precise. Accuracy, on the other hand, is not so important. So what do I mean by accuracy and precision? What's the difference between the two? Um, the old, you know, 
arrow target is kind of the the way that it's it's often illustrated where um you know the bullseye if all your arrows if one of your arrows goes into the the bullseye it's very accurate but if one of them goes into the bullseye one of them goes into you know one of them is high of the bullseye one of them is low of the bullseye one of them is left of the bullseye one of them is right of the bullseye um you might say that those those arrows are all very accurate because they're close to the bullseye. They're all close to the bullseye, um, but they're not very precise because even though they're all close to the bullseye, they're all spread out. So how can we relate that to woodworking? Well, let's say you're building a table. You need four table legs. The plan that you're working to calls for table legs that are 30 inches long. Well, if you cut one of those table legs and that first table leg is 30 inches, the second table leg is 29 and 15 sixteenths. The third table leg is 30 and a sixteenth. The fourth table leg is 29 and seven eighths. Now, I would say that all of those, you know, and of course, this is an exaggeration. Um, they are close to being accurate, right? You were shooting for 30 inches and you're only off by, for the most part, a sixteenth of an inch. But if you try and build a table with those legs, those legs, the, the table is going to wobble because the legs are not the same length. On the other hand, if you, if the plan calls for uh, legs that are 30 inches, you cut your, you know, you cut your first leg and accidentally that table leg comes out to 29 and 7 eighths instead of 30 inches. Well, as long as you make your other three legs, 29 and 7 eighths so that all four legs are identical, that table is going to be just fine. It's going to sit nice and flat and and not wobble on a nice level surface. So that's really the difference between accuracy and precision, right? The first example, those, those numbers were fairly accurate, but because they were, you know, they kind of all, all uh, hit around that 30 inch mark. Now, the second example wasn't really accurate. They, they weren't close to 30 inches. You know, you're a whole eighth of an inch off, but they were all exactly the same measurement. That's precision. That's what we're looking for when, when we're woodworking. Whether you're cutting things on a machine or cutting things on a, you know, by hand, what we're looking for is to be as precise as possible. So how do we do that? Well, on a table saw, you might use a sled with a stop block. So maybe those legs aren't all exactly 30 inches. Maybe they're a 32nd of an inch shy of 30 inches. But by using a stop block, at least all four of them are exactly the same length. And that's the important part. The same thing happens with handwork. I may take a measurement when I first start a project. So I may take a tape measure out or a ruler and I may measure, you know, those legs to be 30 inches. And then I... I uh, square my lines up with my square, my marking knife, and I saw the line and maybe I saw it a little off. So I have to put on a shooting board and, and take a hand plane and shoot the edge square. Well, after shooting the edge square, I may be an eighth of an inch short or a sixteenth of an inch short. Um, but it really doesn't matter as long as I make my other three legs identical in size to that first one. Or in essence, make sure all four legs are identical. How do we do that? Well, with handwork, we can plane off using like a shooting board. 
we can remove wood in almost thousandth of an inch, a thousandth of an inch increments. So if I'm making a table, I'm going to cut my first leg to size, and then I'm going to, I'll actually probably cut all four of them to size. And then I'm going to adjust to make sure that all four are the same length. Now, in reality, I probably wouldn't do that with table legs because I would probably level the table after. Um, but I'm just using it as an example. Um, if we use tenons as an example, I want my shoulder to shoulder length on my tenons, like for the aprons of a table to be exactly the same size. If the plan calls for 20 inches shoulder to shoulder on my tenons, on my, uh, my aprons, I'm going to make sure all four aprons are identical shoulder to shoulder. They may not be exactly 20 inches. They may be a 16th of an inch off or a 32nd of an inch off, or maybe even an eighth of an inch off. But I'm going to make sure that those shoulders are all identical by maybe using a shoulder plane or just maybe the way that I mark and cut and saw. They may be a little bit off of the number, but they're all going to be identical. And that's going to ensure precision. And that's going to ensure that things go together square and properly and that they don't, I don't run into problems later on. So in terms of tools, how do I take the lumber? Well, I'm going to plane my lumber by hand. And in order to make sure if, if I need parts that are the same thickness, I use a marking gauge and I will gauge the thickness directly on those boards. And then I will plane to the gauge line. And similarly to what I was saying before, I may not be using stock that is all three quarters of an inch thick, but if I use the same marking gauge setting to mark all of my pieces and I plane to the line on all of those pieces, those pieces are going to be all an identical thickness, even though I may not be hitting the exact measurement. I may not be hitting exactly three quarters of an inch. I may be a 64th of an inch off. That's fine. As long as all the pieces are the same, that's really what we're going for. So that's sort of what, when I talk about the difference between accuracy and precision, precision is how close you can get those parts, how identically close you can get those parts, regardless of the number. So that's where, you know, whoever had told you that your reliance on, on numbers can backfire, that's what they mean. Forget the number and instead work on being more precise and getting your parts, if they're supposed to be identical, make sure that they're, they're identical. And if they're off by a 32nd or a 16th of an inch, no big deal, as long as they're identical. And, and you're going to find that your work is going to start to go together easier. Things are going to um, kind of self-square themselves because if the two opposite sides are exactly the same length, there's no other way that that can go together, you know, but square um, and flat. So um, I think if you if you start to ignore the numbers and, and focus on your precision, I think you're going to find your woodworking improves considerably. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfiedwoodworking.com. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can also go to brfiedwoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. And uh, let's start getting some more voice memos and uh, some voicemails and, you know, so I can share more voices than my own on the show. Uh, after the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob, and I want to talk to you about another option that you have for supporting the show. In fact, it's a way that all of your financial support comes directly to me. 
You may or may not be aware that one of the services that I offer on my website is handsaw sharpening. I've been sharpening handsaws for almost 15 years, and I've done so as a side business for almost 10 years. If you have a handsaw that needs sharpening, by sending it to me, the proceeds will go to help support and grow the podcast, and you'll get your handsaw professionally sharpened and tuned in return. You can find the prices for the various saw sharpening and restoration services that I offer by visiting my website at brfinewoodworking.com and clicking on products and services. And for the next month only, I'm offering a special discount just for listeners of the podcast. If you send me a saw before the end of September 2017 and mention that you heard this ad on the podcast, I'll give you 10% off the service for each saw you send me. Just go to brfinewoodworking.com, review the saw services that I offer, and then use the email address or contact form on the website to get the process started. And don't forget to mention that you heard this ad on the podcast to get 10% off during the month of September 2017. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is dust control in the hand tool shop. Not exciting, I know, and it probably won't be a real lengthy discussion, but it's a topic worth talking about anyway in this age of the the safety police. But I want to stress the word control here. Um, I don't like using the word collection when talking about this topic because Dust collection is only one aspect of the larger subject of dust control. So I'll certainly touch on the subject of dust collection, but I want to make sure that the discussion doesn't stop there because there's more to dust control than just dust collection. Um, This topic was actually suggested by a listener of the podcast, um, but for the life of me, I can't find the original email to give credit to the person who sent in the question. So to the listener who sent in the question, I apologize for losing your email. And uh, I will go up to my cabin this weekend and spend some time ripping down log siding on my brother's wobbly job site table saw as penance for my error. So this listener is interested in setting up a hand tool workshop inside of the main living space of his house, similar to how my old shop in New Jersey was set up. Um, And what I mean is like somewhere like a spare bedroom or an office or space or something like that, as opposed to in a bed, uh, in a basement or a garage or in a separate building. Um, His main question or, or concern was about dust getting from the shop into the HVAC system and recirculating through the rest of the house. Now, it's a valid concern and one that is certainly worth some thought. Um, however, I don't think there's a whole lot to be concerned about in this regard when it comes to woodworking by hand with maybe one exception that I'll talk about in a minute. So when it comes to woodworking by hand, I really don't find that dust in the HVAC system is a problem. Um, what I find is that dust on shoes being tracked through the house is actually more of a problem. And uh, believe me, there are plenty of times that uh, I have gotten in trouble for tracking dust through the house on my shoes um, than, you know, worrying about anything getting into the HVAC system. So in my in my old shop, um, and if you've seen any of my old podcasts, you've seen me working in my old shop, or if you've read anything on my old blog, you've seen probably seen pictures of my old shop. Um, well, in that shop, there were no HVAC registers. Um, the house did have forced central air and forced air heat, but because the room that my shop was in was, was an addition to that was put on the main house sometime after the main house was built, 
um, they decided not to extend the ductwork. So there was never any ductwork extended into the addition. So in my case, the closest HVAC register to my shop was two rooms away. However, even if there's a, a register in the room, I really wouldn't be too concerned with dust getting into the registers because they only blow air out. So the simple act of turning the unit on is going to cause any dust that might get into a register to be expelled right back into the same room that it came from. Um, the one exception would be if the room has a, a, a cold air return in the, uh, in the area. So if there's a return, that could possibly be a problem because that's not, not, that's not blowing air out. That's sucking air in and bringing it back to the blower. Um, so, I mean, the simple solution is to avoid putting your shop in a room that has an air return intake. Um, you know, for the most part, I don't find dust in the house to be a huge issue with hand tools, regardless of where your shop is, whether it's in the spare bedroom or in the basement or the garage. And that's because most of the debris that's generated from hand tools consists of large particles, large shavings, large chips. Um, and they're just too big and heavy to get into an HVAC system. And for the most part, they're very, very visible and, and easily picked up. So um, like I said before, I do track an occasional shaving or some dust out of the shop um, if it gets stuck to my shoes. But, you know, that's something that's easily picked up. The dust that's generated from hand tools, mainly going to be from tools like hand saws or, or rasps. Um, maybe from scrapers because the fine shavings from a, a scraper can, can turn to dust pretty easily if you step on it. Um, but again, this dust is made up of really large particles that are fairly heavy, relatively speaking, um, compared to say the dust generated by a, a power sander or a table saw. So the combination of the, the larger, the, the larger, heavier particles and the non-projectile nature of the hand tools means that for the most part, all of the dust that's generated with hand tools is going to fall to the ground instead of getting airborne. Um, in fact, the, the time when I generate the most airborne dust in my shop is actually when I sweep up, when I clean up, um, you know, because you're actually pushing that dust around, whether it's sweeping off my, my workbench with a bench brush or sweeping the floor up with a broom. That's really when I'm throwing the most dust into the air. My tools really are not throwing dust into the air. Um, with power tools, you have a lot more to be concerned about, right? Because the dust from power tools is typically much finer, especially if you're using sanders. Um, and the nature of power tools is really to propel that dust into the air and all over the place. You know, if you use a table saw or you use a router, um, they're throwing dust everywhere. So, you know, when I used to work with power tools, there really was never anything in my shop that wasn't absolutely covered with a thick layer of dust. Even the walls had a coating of dust on them. Um, and even if I cleaned the shop, within a couple of days of cleaning everything, they would be covered in dust again. Um, and I also, I couldn't work in that shop without blowing my nose and expelling a lot of sawdust when I was done, you know, if I was in there for a couple of hours. Uh, even with a dust collector and an air cleaner, I had both of those in my old power tool shop, um, and I would still breathe in a lot of that airborne dust from power tools. I don't have either of those problems in my hand tool shop. I don't have a thick layer of dust covering everything, and I'm not blowing dust out of my nose every time I come out of my shop after working in it with, for a couple of hours. 
And in my current shop, I don't have a dust collector or an air cleaner. So I would say for the most part, I wouldn't worry about, you know, wood dust getting, certainly wouldn't worry about it getting into the HVAC system as long as you stay away from air returns in your space. So keep your workshop out of a room that has a return uh, register and you should be in good uh, good shape. You know, there are some additional strategies though, right? So we talked... We're, we're talking about keeping the dust out of the HVAC system, but in general, you want to keep your mess contained to your shop. And I talked before, you know, it's more, not just dust collection, it's more about dust control. So my primary strategy for keeping any shop mess out of the rest of the house is to keep the space where I'm standing and working swept and, and clean and sweep off my shoes before I leave the shop. So it's not to say that I'm a broom Nazi, right? I don't sweep up every little speck as soon as it hits the floor. Um, but I try not to walk all over the dust and shavings if I can help it. So I'll do some work and then I'll use a push broom to move the dust and shavings from what I was just doing from where I'm from the immediate area that I'm working. And I'll just push it over into a pile that's near the trash can until I'm ready to clean it all up. And I may do this a couple of times in an evening of work just to keep my immediate general area clean. But I don't pick everything up all the time and put it in a trash can. Typically, until I run out of room to work, usually I'm, I'm usually pretty lazy about that. Um, so I may have a big pile of dust and, and shavings sitting in the middle of my shop or at one end of my shop um, because I haven't picked it up and put it in a trash can. But I am cleaning the area that I'm working in and sweeping that area that I'm working in so that I'm not walking through all of that. Um, and I find that simply moving all of the shavings and dust away from that immediate working area really helps to to minimize the amount of dust and debris that you know sticks to the bottom of my shoes so that I'm not tra- trapping it or trailing it all over. Um, and then when I need to to leave the shop into the rest of the house, you just take I have a, a brush that I use to brush off my workbench. I'll take that bench brush and brush off the soles of my shoes to remove any wood or chips or, or shavings that are um, stuck to my shoes um, so that they stay in the shop. So, you know, my in terms of my dust collection, I don't have a, a formal dust collector. I have a broom and a dustpan that I will use to, you know, I, I use the broom quite often because, like I said, I will move the, the junk and the debris over into a pile so that I'm not walking through it and tracking it all over. Um, but I don't necessarily pick it up all that often. Um, but the dustpan picks most of it up when I need to. And then when I want to do a real thorough cleaning around the shop, um, I may break out the shop vac and just, you know, vac off the windowsills and things like that. You are going to get some dust um, that is airborne. Obviously, f- sweeping is going to throw some dust airborne. But, you know, there's also just dust in the air. I mean, if you look at your furniture and you don't dust your house for two or three or four weeks, you're going to get a layer of dust on your furniture. And that's not from a wood shop. You know, if you don't have a wood shop in your house, that dust isn't coming from a wood shop. It's just the dust that's in the air naturally settles on these surfaces. So you're going to have that in your shop as well. Um, It may be a little heavier in your shop especially if you do a lot of sanding. Um, I don't sand too much. I'll sand once in a while um, after planing if I need to. If I need a a more consistent surface, I might hit something with some 220 grit, but I don't do a lot of sanding. So like I said earlier, 
um, it's, it's mostly when I'm sweeping that I'm throwing that dust up into the air. And some of that dust might land on some surfaces. Um, but I don't have near the, the, the surface dust that I used to have with my power tools, which are throwing that dust all over the place. So, you know, uh, broom in a, in a dustpan, take care of most of it with the occasional shop vac when things start to get a, a little bit thick in places where I'm not sweeping. Um, and that's about it. I don't have an air cleaner. I don't have, you know, a dust collector like you would hook up to a machine because I don't really find use for either one of those in my shop. I don't wear a respirator, um, again, because I don't really have a problem with airborne dust in my shop. So I think for the most part, um, you won't have to worry too much. If you're keeping just hand tools in that shop and that's all you're working with, I think you can work right in your living room and uh, you should be just fine. Your wife may not care for it too much, but hey, you know, not every wife can be like mine. So, you know, you may have to be a little tidier working inside the house than if you were in in a garage or in a basement or, you know, where I am now, which is a separate building outside my house. Um, but, you know, my shop now doesn't have heat, doesn't have air conditioning. It's not insulated. Um, so I would kill to be back in my old shop, you know, in a nice, comfortable environment that I can work in year round. Um, and I'll get there eventually. But, you know, if you can do it, I would certainly pick that climate controlled space and, and hand tools. Um, and, you know, the other benefit that I liked with that old shop was that my family could wander in and out as they wish. You know, now when I'm out in the shed outside the house, sometimes, you know, my kids will come out, sometimes they won't. Um, but, you know, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody in the other room while you're planing or, or doing some sawing or whatever. My wife and I could chat all the time. When I had my old shop, she might be sitting in the family room watching TV and I'm in the adjacent room, you know, working on a project. So, um, you know, if you can if you can arrange that type of uh, shop setup, I think it's great. I used to love mine. So and uh, and it was climate controlled, which was a which was a great thing. So if you have the space and means to set it up, I highly recommend it. You won't regret it. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions. You can do so with that voice memo recorded from your phone and emailing it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, and uh, I would actually prefer you know a voice memo or, or a voicemail if you can just to get some different voices on the show. Um, but if you're not up for that, you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. And if you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt011. And in the show notes, you can find links that I refer to in today's show and also links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And also, you can send a saw for sharpening. And you'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, everyone. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.